Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 17th, 2022. It's Martin Luther King Day, but the headlines aren't as much about Martin Luther King as one of the biggest problems in, in America and perhaps the world today, terrorism. Um, the CNN headlines uh, about an FBI identification of the hostage taker at the synagogue in Texas over the weekend. Um, Washington Post quotes someone saying that uh, some people just don't like us from a, a Texas synagogue, 11 hours of terror over the weekend. Um, in the New York Times, apparently the officials investigating the synagogue attackers link to the 2010 terror case, another terrible terrorist occasion. Um, we have also in the New York Times uh, the fact that the supposed terrorist, whatever that means, had mental health issues. He was from the UK. And uh, I'm lucky enough to have uh, one of the world's leading authorities, if not on terrorism, on violence and the American role in uh, this terrorist assault on the country, Brad Taylor. Um, he's the author of a number of um, New York Times best-selling books. Uh, his latest book is End of Days. And he's also a very experienced uh, United States military man. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his home in South Carolina. Brad, happy MLK Day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, are these headlines significant, Brad, or is this just a one-off? I think it's a one-off. I've seen a lot of uh, stories about, oh, they're going to have copycats. There's, you know, there's going to be another terrorist who uh, tries to take over something to free a hostage, free a, somebody in prison. But that's historically been one of the driving motivators of uh, terrorism. I mean, it's so prominent that even Hollywood fictional movies use it. Die Hard. I mean, they weren't even terrorists. They were robbing something. But what what they do? They said, we want all these people freed. We want these guys freed. True lies. We want all these people freed. We want all these people freed. I mean, it's that's just something that happens in terrorism. And nobody's going to look at this uh, one-off event and then say, wow, that worked out well. I'm going to go kidnap some people to free some terrorists. I mean, that's just... 80% of the time, somebody that takes a hostage, it's because they want somebody free. This is not a new thing. Maybe you started college but haven't finished. Are you looking for an accredited institution with a rich heritage in technology? Look to DeVry University. Founded in 1931, DeVry delivers technology-focused education that you can earn on your own time with the flexibility of online classes. Save time and money with qualifying transfer credits and reignite your career path. Scholarships and grants are available to those who apply and qualify. Visit devry.edu forward slash future to learn more. That's devry.edu forward slash future. Restrictions apply. Details at devry.edu.
Uh, Brad, as I said, your your biography. You were you were born in Japan and you grew up in Texas. Um, you had eight years in the First Special Forces Operational Detachment. In terms of your best-selling New York Times books, how much of your experience in the U.S. military is baked into these books? Are you writing as an ex-U.S. serviceman or are you writing as a writer or a little bit of both? I, it, it, it's definitely a little bit of both. In fact, I told my editor, they always like to you know, pimp out my uh, bio because I, I did I served 22 years and almost all that time in special operations and you know did combat all over the world. But I always told my editor, you know, when did when, when I get to be a, a instead of being a veteran who happens to write, when do I get to be a writer who happens to be a veteran? And all, all the stuff that's in the books, you know, you can't help but use your own experiences. There's no uh, nothing. The books are fictional. There's nothing in the books that I've actually accomplished uh, because those were all classified. But you have to use your own experiences. I mean, you, you can't help but use it when you um, if you're going to write a scene about riding a bicycle. What would you think of? What was the last time I rode a bike? What did it feel like? I write a scene about a grocery store. What do I think of? When's the last grocery store I went into? So when I write a scene about assault in the house or a gunfight or operational details with uh, the planning process and things like that, of course, I'm going to rely on what I know. Brief synopsis, Brad, of um, End of Days. It's just out, and I am sure it will be another one of your New York Times bestsellers. What's the book about? Uh, it's about a group of guys that uh, have decided they're, they're going to start the next crusade, basically, the final crusade. They want to eradicate uh, Islam from the earth. And uh, the, the storyline came to me. Actually, I was doing book research for um, uh, Ring of Fire. I'd come out of Morocco and uh, was in Rome, had a couple day layover, and we were doing a tour. And this, this car came by with diplomatic plates. And my guide said, that's a night of Malta. And I never heard of them. Uh, and I asked him what it was. And it turns out this organization's been around since uh, the first crusade in the 13th century. Uh, it's, uh, has their own passports. They have the diplomatic relations with multiple countries. They have a seat at the UN observer status, but a seat at the UN They make their own postage, have their own currency, but they own no terrain. And it was just fascinating to me. And I, I had it in the back of my head over and over. One of these days I'm going to use them in a book. And then when COVID hit and I got locked in, I used them in a book. Uh, the other headline today, of course, is, as you mentioned, COVID, uh, coronavirus in the United States, the Hockey stick is a backup, 800,000 cases. Um, I know that you include COVID in the narrative itself. What, what is the role of COVID in End of Days? Yeah, I had that was a tough choice. So uh, I my last book, American Trader, I, I came back from Taiwan and uh, from Australia doing research on that. And then COVID hit. And um, I had a choice to make. Now, do I include COVID in the book? Because I had... You know, at Shinland Night Market in Taipei, there were a thousand people there. Now there's nobody. Um, Pike's going to do, uh, Pike Logan, my main character, is going to do a surveillance effort in the Sydney Harbor. Uh, now there's nobody on the street. It'd just be him and the target. Uh, you can't fly anywhere. Do I include it? And so I kind of punted on that and uh, said it in January of 2020 when the uh, Taiwan elections occurred, which is kind of what the book was about anyway. So it wasn't a big deal. Um, and then uh, I had to write this book. Now, do I include COVID? I mean, the worst thing would be is you include COVID and then we're sitting here right now and COVID's gone. Who wants to read about that? I looked at the data and I said... Well, uh, some, uh, there is some upside of that, Brad. It might not be good for you as an author, but it'd be good for the rest of us. Well, yeah, obviously. I'm not saying that, you know... I'm no, I'm teasing you. Go on. Uh, what I mean is I had to predict, is COVID going to be here or not? Uh, and do I just ignore it 
as a fantasy. And so I decided, no, I think it's going to be around. I looked at the, the um, statistics and said, it's, it's coming. Uh, Africa was still going bad. A lot of places were going bad. And I said, this thing's not going away. There's going to be a variant that comes out. And actually, I wrote the book right before Delta came out in front of Omicron. And um, I decided to use it. And it's not a book about COVID. It's just one more thing that the task force, my organization, has to deal with. They have to deal with the weather. They have to deal with the target. They have to deal with the enemy. Uh, they have to deal with flight plans. You know, they have to deal with everything. Now they have to deal with COVID. It's just one more thing they have to deal with. Subtitle of the the novel, um, Brad, End of Days, is a Pike Logan novel. Who is Pike Logan? He's a, uh, I, they always call it a Pike Logan novel, but it's, uh, for me, it's more Pike Logan and Jennifer Cahill. They're kind of partners in crime, and she's been there since the very beginning. Uh, but he's a leader of a counterterrorist task force, um, a team leader, and uh, he it's a complete fictional organization. I, I didn't want anybody to think that I was, you know, writing about real units that I'd served in and just changing the names to protect the innocent, so to speak. Uh, because all that stuff is classified. And I created out of whole cloth. It's an organization that operates outside the bounds of U.S. Constitution, has an oversight council, and um, they go around solving problems. Do you think books like yours tend to glamorize anti-terrorist organizations like um, the one that Pike Logan is involved in uh, um, that might encourage violence of some sort or other? Uh, encourage violence from terrorists? And either way, from the state or terrorists or glamorizing it for an audience who then will accept U.S. overseas wars or, or various other kinds of counter-terrorist um, activity. I, I don't think that, uh, I mean, people have been writing books like this since, you know, the Bible's been written. Uh, I don't think it uh, encourages anybody to do anything. I'm not sure where your question's going. No, I don't think that uh, it's encouraging somebody to grab a gun and go run around the street shooting people? I don't think that's happening. How much, um, how literate do you think most Americans are about the situation currently, the politics of the Middle East? We've done a lot of shows about Israel, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, which isn't really part of the Middle East. Are you concerned with the lack of literacy? Is one of the, the purposes of your work to make people more literate about the world? Oh, definitely. Uh, every bit of the book, uh, any of the books I write, there's an enormous amount of research that goes into it. And there's an enormous amount of uh, uh, realism in it. The, the fact and fiction kind of collides together. And I do, in fact, try to uh, 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 illuminate some of the problem sets that are around the world. And when I say illuminate, I don't mean, you know, bash somebody. I'm saying this is every one of my antagonists. When you read about an antagonist, there's a reason why he is the antagonist. I mean, I've sat across from plenty of uh, uh, leaders, uh, terrorist leaders, and, and they're making jokes and cracking jokes and things like that. And uh, um, I'm like, why does he want to kill everybody? And it's because he thinks he's doing the right thing. I'm the bad guy. He's the good guy. And I try to uh, show that on the page. I've been looking at some of your other writing. Um, you're very sad about the fall of Kabul, and we can talk a little bit about the Afghanistan situation uh, in a few minutes, maybe after the break. You're also quite critical in some ways of American journalism. Um, one piece you suggest that Americans and the New York Times, you, you single out in a way, um, have suggested that Americans are responsible for the everything from the humanitarian disaster in the Yemen to the Syrian civil war. Where do you think American illiteracy about the Middle East or popular 
misunderstanding of the situation in the Middle East. What concerns you the most? What what neighborhood, what issue, what period of history? Well, I don't think it's an American standard of misunderstanding. It's a world standard. Yeah, I, I accept that. I, I, I'm not singling out the U.S., but you're writing, I think, as an American for a U.S. audience. No, I'm writing as an American for a worldwide audience. Okay. Well, what, what um, globally, what, what areas do you think people most specifically misunderstand? What are you most concerned about? Uh, well, you'd have to pick a topic on that. I mean, as far as, uh, you know, people say terrorism, first of all, I'm, I'm most concerned that people don't understand terrorism. Everybody uses that term and throws it out there left and right, and they don't even understand what they're talking about. Uh, and then when you talk about Islamic terrorism, once again, you people say, oh, it's Islamic terrorism. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, if you look at, as a matter of fact, United Kingdom, you know, the troubles in Ireland, uh, you had the Protestants against the Catholics. Was that a religious war? No, it was a political war. It just happened to be that the people trying to, you know, doing the fight in Belfast were Catholic and the other people were Protestants. It didn't mean that it was because the Catholics hated the Protestants. It meant that the people in Ireland wanted to, you know, have their own way. And that's what the troubles came from. And most people look at some kind of terrorism and, and automatically default to, oh, he's a Muslim. It must be, you know, he's a crazy Muslim. No, it's some of it's a political fight. Uh, a lot of it's a political fight. There's a reason that Hamas, uh, which is a terrorist organization uh, in the Gaza Strip, uh, denounced 9-11. It's because they didn't want to get lumped in with the people who did 9-11. They have political things they want to accomplish, and they do not want to be known as, I'm not part of that crazy crew that crashed planes into the, the uh, World Trade Center. Uh, most uh, uh, terrorist actions have a lot of nuance to them. And... We tend to not look at that. We just we want a bumper sticker. Somebody get on TV and give me my little bumper sticker so I can run around, and that's what it is. We had the, uh, and I'm sure you know her work, the Lebanese-based journalist and BBC correspondent uh, Kim Khatas on the show last year. She wrote a prize-winning book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory from the Middle East. Like you, she believes that the politics of the Middle East are, are incredibly complicated. And in her, her attempt to unravel things, she begins with this rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Do you think that makes sense? Oh, they definitely have. I mean, there's a Cold War going on between the two. Um, and we helped fuel it. You know, uh, Mossadegh was the guy that uh, we took out of the coup and we put in the Shah. Uh, and we gave more money to uh, Iran than we ever did to, say, Saddam Hussein or anybody else. And at that time, the Soviet Union was in the sway. Saudi Arabia was in the sway of the Soviet Union and it was our own Cold War. Uh, now, obviously, Saudi Arabia is a Sunni state. Uh, Iran's a Shia. Saudis are Arab. Iran's a Persian. Um, so there's a lot of fault lines there. Uh, but I would say that uh, both of them, they're looking at the other as a rival, not as an enemy so much as they're, they both want hegemony. And uh, they both have the ability to get it. And that's what their rivalry is that, you know, Saudi Arabia wants to get rid of Iran because Saudi Arabia wants hegemony over the Middle East. Iran wants to get rid of Saudi Arabia for the same reason. Iran's got Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, they're about to take over Iraq for all practical purposes. They own Assad in Syria. Uh, and Saudi Arabia doesn't like that. Saudi Arabia wants to go the other way. And, and Qatar's, you know, kind of the middleman doing both sides. Uh, so Saudi Arabia boycotts Qatar, gets UAE to boycott Qatar. Uh, we have our biggest air base uh, in the Middle East is in Qatar because Saudi Arabia kicked us out 
And so now we're kind of caught up between a rock and a hard place there. Katas uh, um, also suggests that in this three-way relationship, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United States, most of the people in the Middle East are, are victims. And she uses this phrase, what happened to us, which is a popular phrase amongst uh, the Arab peoples of the Middle East. Do you think that many of the peoples of the Middle East are victims of this geopolitical struggle or great powers or regional powers, Saudi, Iran, United States, Russia, perhaps even China? Yeah, they are, but it's not so much, uh, I wouldn't say so much geopolitics in the sense that uh, all those countries have leaders and most of those leaders are corrupt. Uh, you know, look at Yemen in and of itself. Uh, the, you know, the leader of Yemen in Sana'a uh, was just horribly corrupt. And the Houthis in Yemen, which are Shia, uh, I don't think they would have been able to take over Sana'a and take over most of the country, uh, which is mainly a Sunni country, without the people thinking that our government is corrupt and let them do it. Now it's devolved into a complete morass of a humanitarian crisis because of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's in there bombing, UAE's in there, we're in there fighting the Houthis, and we're all fighting the Houthis because Iran's funding the Houthis. Iran wants to create a Shia state there. Sad news from Brad Taylor, or I don't know if it's sad or ironic or uh, tragic in a way. Brad is one of America's leading, I think, viewers of, 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 of violence and politics, particularly in the Middle East. He's a New York Times bestselling writer. His new book, End of Days, a Pike Logan uh, a Pike Logan novel. He's a novelist, but also, as he suggested in the first part of the show, uh, Brad's work is very much based on the real politics of the region, as well as his many years of experience in American um, special forces. Uh, Brad, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit about the American involvement in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and how we're going to fix all this, according to not Pike Logan, but Brad Taylor. So we'll be back in a second. Stay with us, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with Brad Taylor, uh, the author of many New York Times bestselling books. His latest book, End of Days, is just out. It's a novel. Um, Brad, um, you're, uh, as I said, uh, you're... You have a very distinguished uh, biography. Uh, you had eight years in the first Special Forces Operational Detachment. Um, and uh, I was very struck by uh, a piece you wrote on the rapid fall of, of Kabul. You, you say, it tore a, ho- a hole in my heart. It's taken me days to get my mind around what we've witnessing and, and gain some focus to write this Um First and foremost, I'm not surprised at the speed in which this happened. Uh, why everyone in our defense establishment is surprised is what baffles me. Uh, do the American defense establishment, have they ever got the Middle East? And how does the crisis or the embarrassment of Afghanistan, how does it fit into the broader narrative of American involvement in the region? Uh, well, first of all, Afghanistan's in the stands. It's not in, in the Middle East. Those yeah, two are- I, I, accept, I, I noted that earlier. Well, I'm just saying it's completely disconnected. If you want to talk Middle East, that's a whole different story than talking Afghanistan. So if you conflate the two, that's not Afghanistan. Okay, well, uh, let, let's not let's de, de, deflate the two and, and separate the two. I do want to talk about Iraq, but I but I accept that point. So uh, leaving aside whether it whether or yeah, so it's not a Middle Eastern country. But how would you explain? What's your narrative on what's happened in our, in Afghanistan? Is it um, is does it is it simply a reflection of the incompetence of the American defense establishment? No, it's a reflection of our inability to see what's on the ground. Um, the Taliban have been inside the uh, structures of the government forever, uh, and the U.S. tried to build up a, a, a system in our own image, and the Taliban could use that at the district level, local level. We would have, for instance, if you're going to, um, you'd build up a ANA, the uh, Afghan National Army. You would put all these conscripts in. Well, in the United States, you you could be from South Carolina and you get assigned to Washington State. You could be from Georgia and get assigned to you know Okinawa, wherever. Uh, so we did the same thing. So we take these people out of their villages and then go fling them all over the country. Uh, the Taliban didn't do that. So you've got a guy that's from uh, one area, you know, Mazi Sharif, and now he's going to some other area. He doesn't know the locals. He doesn't know the customs. He doesn't know any of that. And the Taliban did know it. They they use people from the local area. Uh, and then that's just one single point. The other point is the corruption. The government was rampant. Uh, and as Americans, we like to fire hose money at problems. And we did fire hose money and just increase the corruption. Um, there's a lot of things that were going right in Afghanistan. Uh, the commandos, the conducts that we trained, they were some of the best ever. In fact, I had another op-ed that I wrote the day that Afghanistan died. There was a guy that was, uh, his fiance was an American citizen. He was kind of a cross between Saladin and Captain America for the Afghans. His father was a general. He was a leader in, uh, in the commandos. And what would happen is the commandos would go in and, and route out Taliban, and then they'd bring in the regular ANA to stabilize the area. And the commandos were doing about 90% of the fighting. And they took over town about a month before Afghanistan fell. And um, the conducts ran them out. And then they called in the ANA, and the ANA refused to come in. Uh, 22 Afghan commandos were captured. All 22 were shot in the back of the head on video. 
which was then used on social media. Uh, and that's the day that Afghanistan died. Uh, if you couldn't protect Captain America inside Afghanistan uh, and he got shot in the back of the head, why would the average soldier want to stand up to the Taliban? I mean, these guys, and the reason for that was we pulled all contracting support for their aircraft. There was no air support. They called it in. Nothing could fly. We refused to fly. Um, and that sent a, uh, in any insurgency you have, uh, perception is reality. If, if you didn't have the fervent belief that you could win, for instance, our own insurgency in 1776, there's no way that an American ragtag militia could beat the foremost superpower on earth in their own territory. Everybody believed they could. Perception is reality. Uh, and if you believe it hard enough, that's why every insurgency that does succeed, they firmly believe it. And uh, it also works the other way. If you're the opposing force and you think this insurgency is about to win, you want to be on the winning side when it's over. There's a book called A Rational Peasant, which describes this. It's about Vietnam. You know, why would the peasant side with the Viet Cong? Because the peasant, he, while he doesn't care about the government or the Viet Cong, he doesn't want to be on the losing side. He wants to be on the winning side. And if the perception is somebody's winning, they will join that side. And that's exactly what happened to Taliban. The, the dominoes started falling extremely fast after that. And people were throwing down their arms and leaving. And there was literally nothing you could do about it at that point. We tried to get the president, Ghazi, to do something, uh, you know, bolster certain areas. Uh, instead of trying to protect the entire country, bolster certain areas, harden up certain areas uh, so that you can then do what's known as the oil spot theory and spread out from there like oil on water. Uh, he refused to do that. And the next thing you know, the barbarians were at the gate. We've done a lot of shows on 9-11. We had uh, William Arkin last November uh, 11th, uh, sorry, September 11th on, according to him at least, I, I'm sure you know his work on how the US government failed its citizens on 9-11 in terms of um, both the day and I think the wars afterwards. What's your take on the relationship between 9-11 in terms of the mismanagement of uh, American foreign policy, potential foreign policy, both in Afghanistan and in the Middle East. Is there a connection? There is certainly in the Middle East. We should never have gone into Iraq. That was an enormous debacle, which affected Afghanistan. If we had had a prime focus in Afghanistan, uh, with all effort dedicated to Afghanistan, I firmly believe Afghanistan would not have been as it did. But and you do so think we should have gone, we, uh, the Americans should have gone into Afghanistan? Well, yeah, they destroyed the World Trade Center. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Just say, well, no harm, no foul. You guys keep doing what you're doing over there in Afghanistan. I don't mind that. We asked him to turn over bin Laden. The Taliban said they wouldn't do it. We said, okay, we're going to get him. I, yeah, absolutely think we should have gone to Afghanistan. What else are you going to do? Sit there and say, well, you killed 3,000 of ours. I guess we could have done that for Pearl Harbor too. No, well, no big deal. Uh, you mentioned um, Iraq. We've done a number of shows on Iraq. We had the Arizona Congressman Ruben Gallego, uh, who fought in Iraq. Tragic book. His um, they called us lucky, uh, lucky. The life and afterlife of the Iraq War's hardest hit units. A tragic book and a very hard hitting book. We had Robert Draper on the show. He believes, like one coal, another critical UN, U.S. analyst that the Iraq war was probably the biggest disaster in U.S. foreign policy history. You haven't said that, but you do say it's a mistake. How big a mistake do you think it was? Uh, I think it was 
pretty big. I mean, I don't know if I'd call it the greatest disaster in foreign policy history, but uh, it would rank in the top five. There's no doubt. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that's happened uh, because of that. For instance, Iran now has sway over Iraq precisely because we broke the pottery mold and didn't put it back together again. Uh, Iran's trying to get a land bridge into Syria so they can do Hezbollah, uh, refund or um, arm Hezbollah through a land bridge where they don't have to fly things around. They're trying to get sway over all that. And that's all because we went into Iraq. I mean, we, it amazes me. I, my master's thesis was on counter leadership targeting. And part of the, one of the um, case studies was us targeting Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War. And the uh, entire policy section said, we're not going in to take out Saddam Hussein because in that time, Bosnia was going on. It was like, this is going to balkanize uh, Iraq. You're going to have the Kurds, Shia and Sunni going at each other. You'll it'll devolve into insurgency and you do not want to be the guy that has to try to put that back together. And that's one of the main reasons that George H.W. Bush did not drive on to Baghdad. He was like, we're not going to take over this entire mess. Well, then, you know, his son later with the same policy team says, we're going to take over Baghdad. And it's like, did you not listen to what your father's team said? What changed? And that's exactly what happened. What do you think did change, Brian? I think that there was a, a, a lot of people that thought that, uh, uh, I think it was misguided notion that we could import American democracy into Iraq they would throw uh, leaves at us at rose petals and say, yay, yay, you got rid of Saddam. I mean, nobody likes Saddam, but all the factions that were there was just like Yugoslavia. I mean, not a whole lot of people like Tito, but at the end of the day, he held it together. And uh, once we got rid of him, it was time for those guys to take it to each other. And then they took it to us as well. And we waited too long. There's a, there's a, I mean, a host of things I could talk about about Iraq. There are bazillions of missteps along the way, uh, you know, releasing the entire army, debathification of the government, uh, just a host of things we did that uh, uh, didn't enhance our prospects for success. Um, and we also, there's a lot of things we didn't do that could have enhanced our prospect for success. Some of the things were successful. I mean, Zarqawi was a terrorist leader working for Al-Qaeda and he hated Shias just as much as he hated Americans. And so he was trying to start a civil war and he was blowing up Golden Dome Mosque. He blew up all kinds of stuff, killing all these Muslims killed so many of them that uh, terrorists that were attacking us, Sunni terrorists that were attacking us said, hey, we're kind of sick of this guy. If you give us arms and ammunition, we'll take it to him. And that's known as you know, the Sunni awakening. Uh, and it happened. And they wiped out Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They became um, the Islamic State and were hiding in Douala province and just little bitty nobodies. They eventually became ISIS. But at the time, they took them out. And there was a, so we had some successes in various things that on the ground. We knew we should do this and do that. But a lot of stuff was just mismanagement of breathtaking levels. Number one being we should have never gone in in the first place. There was no reason to do it. We are talking with Brad Taylor, the author of End of Days, a, a Pike Logan novel. Um, he's a fiction writer, New York Times bestselling fiction writer, but also quite hard hitting, I think, in his political analysis. Uh, Brad, your book is about American intelligence, but it's also about Israel and the Mossad and the American relationship with Israel. We've done a lot of shows about Israel, obviously one of the, the most complicated and controversial subjects, if not the most controversial and complicated subject in the world. We had Noah Tishby, the Israeli uh, actress on the show. 
wrote a book who very much defending Israel. We had Daniel Sokach on the show, who trying to sort of walk a fine line between critics and defenders. We also recently had the Lebanese-Palestinian writer Halal Alian on the show, uh, talking about the experience of the Palestinian people. Um, your book is, of course, fiction, but as you say, fiction and fact go together. Mossad, Brad, uh, I don't want a one-liner, but what is the role of, or what has been the role of Israel in American foreign policy in the Middle East? Is this as central as some critics suggest, or are these two separate stories, the story of the U.S.-Israeli relationship and then the Middle Eastern one, the Arab one? Uh, I think it would depend on the time frame and the uh, operations in various... Every country operates with their own national interests at heart. Uh, Israel and the United States interests dovetail quite a bit, but in sometimes they don't dovetail. Uh, I mean, the Joseph Pollard case, Israel stole a bunch of stuff from us because they want it. Uh, but every country is going to operate in their own national interests first and foremost. And we have operated with Israel over and over again for all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about classified stuff, but just open source stuff you can read about. Uh, Israel just admitted that they helped us kill uh, General Soleimani in Baghdad. They gave us the intelligence for it. Uh, Israel, it's an open source thing, helped with us for uh, uh, Olympic Games for the uh, uh, Stuxnet virus into Iran. Other times, Israel and the United States are, are loggerheads. Um, the Red Prince, uh, Soleimani, was the guy that uh, was the architect of the Munich massacre in 1972 that killed all the Israeli athletes. The Wrath of God teams, they were their number one target. Get that guy. Uh, but he was very, very, very well protected. Well, uh, Henry Kissinger went to visit the PLO at the time, and uh, he was guarded by members of Black September. His personal security detail was members of Black September, and the CIA were coordinating with those guys at the time. Uh, so there's a time when you know the, Israel wanted nothing more than to kill this guy, and the CIA was coordinating with him to protect Henry Kissinger going to uh, Palestine. How close are we, Brad, to the end of days, uh, your title of your book? Um, when it comes to the Middle East, is there still a real risk of a, some sort of accidental, perhaps nuclear catastrophe coming out of the, yeah. the, the, the politics and the terrorism of the various forces and organizations within the Middle East? Yeah, the Middle East is obviously a flashpoint. And, and in the book, it's, you know, what I'm talking about is a Temple Mount. Uh, where yeah, I don't want to give away all the story because then, then people won't buy the book and it won't be a New York Times bestseller. But it, <laughs> obviously there is an end of days piece of it yeah well it's a, the temple mount is it's you know that's part of the book but the it's part of life i mean that's a huge flashpoint it's it's the number one religious place in all of judaism it's number three for islam after mecca and medina it's supposedly the dome of the rock is where muhammad went to uh, heaven uh and it's hugely relevant to all the christians because the, the you know temple of solomon all that other kind of stuff you have to have the third temple's got to be built there in order for the second coming of christ to come for christianity uh, and that thing is a huge flashpoint. And you can see it over and over again, which is the very reason in 1967, the Six-Day War, Israel took over uh, the Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mount, um, depending on which religion you know, you're talking about. Um, and they realized if we want to maintain a state, we can't take this thing over. It's just too uh, volatile. And so they left it to Jordan and the Islamic Waqf that, that controls that area. They said, you can still control it, Jordan. It's still yours. Uh, and then they forbade... Um, Jews from uh, worshiping up on top of the uh, mount itself. The Christians as well can't worship there. 
the Al-Aqsa Mosque is up there and then all the Muslims can worship. And it's a huge flashpoint. I mean, there's a ton of people who are like, get rid of those guys. This is our land, not their land. Uh, and it's also on the opposite side, a huge flashpoint for them as well. Uh, so it's it's has the ability to create a huge fight. And Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, nobody else does. You know, Iran's going to have one probably in three days, but right now they don't. And uh, there is a, a potential there. Brad, let's end on a more positive note, especially because it's Martin Luther King Day. He, of course, famously talked about the arc of justice in the long term, somehow moving towards justice. How can we push that arc of justice uh, in the Middle East? Give me a, one or two things that the U.S. can actually do to encourage peace in the Middle East. I don't know whether that's a realistic uh, uh, a, a, a realistic proposition. But we certainly, it's in all of everyone's interest, obviously the people of the Middle East, but the Americans and everyone around the world to have a more peaceful neighborhood. What can we do? The, I think what we could do most of all is follow our own, um, our own guidance, our own uh, doctrine of uh, human rights and that kind of thing. Sometimes we fall off the wagon on that, like the Shah of Iran, um, like Khashoggi's murder, you know, with the- uh, In uh, Turkey. Uh, you know, we, we, should, we shouldn't just allow that to go on. Uh, the uh, encroachment. Are there democratic forces, though, that we should be supporting that we're not outside Israel? They, um, not really. No, not, not in the Middle East. If you're talking specifically Middle East, no, they're all kingdoms. They're all dictatorships. I, I can't think of of one that has a. Any reason to be cheerful, then, Brad? Apart from. Yeah, actually, there's a lot. I mean, Israel did. The, the, you know, they have relations with the UAE. They have relations with Bahrain now. They have relations with Morocco. Uh, and Morocco is actually a good example. That's a shining. I mean, it, it is a kingdom, um, but that's a pretty neat place. I mean, he has religious, absolute religious freedom. His wife does not wear uh, hijab because she wants to respect all religions. I mean, she says that straight up. So uh, there, there are some good places out there. Uh, well, you've cheered me up, Brad. Thank you on Martin Luther King Day. I don't want to be too miserable, and I'm thrilled that we had you, your best-selling writer. Your new book, End of Days, is just out, a Pike Logan novel. Anyone who likes a, a, good, uh, a good plot, very well-written and very coherent and tight and compelling, needs to get your book. I know you have many, many fans who don't need me to suggest it. In addition, Brad, you're talking to me from your home in South Carolina. What else should people be reading on MLK Day? Uh, well, I don't know about MLK Day, but I I always read for escapism. That's what I want to do. I don't want to escaping what? Yeah, I said, what's that? What are you escaping? Uh, the real world. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a trouble. I have to do research all day long. I study terrorism. I still do, you know, security contracts. Um, uh, I work for various agencies on asymmetric threats, and so when I read, I just want to say, okay, leave all that behind. Let me go read something else. And so I read murder mysteries, you know, so John Sanford, Robert Crace, something like that. That's what I do is just to get away from it all. I'm going to let you escape, Brad. Go back to your murder mysteries. Go back to your wonderful writing. Thank you so much. Congratulations on this wonderful new book, End of Days. And uh, you seem to be a machine when it comes to writing. No doubt we'll have you on the show in the not too distant future talking about uh, your next best-selling book. Thank you so much, Brad Taylor. Thank you. Looking forward to coming back.